0: Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, at scmoline.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah four fifteen through twenty three. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other, and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another." In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Back in February, there was an article that was written by a man named Aaron Rend, is published in First Things magazine. Uh, it was actually an article that he had been sort of workshopping over the last several years, and and in this article, uh, he, he makes note of, <coughs> excuse me, the the change uh, in American culture, the change of American culture's attitude towards Christianity. Um, It's quite a fascinating article, you can find it online, I think it's called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. but in this, he, he suggests that there are three different worlds. We lived in three different eras as Christians uh, within the last several decades. He says we've existed in, most of us anyway, in the positive world. And this goes back to pre-1994, and anything preceding that, where in this era, in the positive world, uh, being a Christian was normative and, and also to that it was a status enhancer that Christians wanted to do business with Christians. There was a, a, a reputableness that's, that's going on in the community, well-respected, positive outlook. And with that, uh, Christian morals and values were sort of imprinted in a society and it sort of was widely held regardless of if, you know, so like certainly Christians held to this, but also non-Christians were inclined to approve or, or enjoy the benefits of, of these good Christian morals. Then after 1994, he noticed a shift where it was no longer so positive to be a Christian, where it was a status enhancer. Rather, it was sort of socially tolerable, it's okay, this is from 1994 to about 2014. Um, there's some of the, the, the moral residual of Christianity that allowed the, the culture to kind of carry on, not major collapse, no major conflicts between the church and the secular world. And then he noticed a shift somewhere around the year of 2014, which brings us to the present age, which he calls the negative world. Now, you think you probably understand where this is going, it's kind of the, the environment that we are currently in, and in the negative world, to be a Christian is a negative thing, uh, according to society's standards and, and views, where Christianity, to be a faithful Christian, uh, you're viewed as a bigot. You're viewed, you, you are an oppressor. You are somebody, you're flat out undesirable in the culture. And we see this kind of take place among the, the social elites and also just the the, the normal cultural uh, current that 's pulling along where where Christians are viewed as a threat to the progressive public good which which the progressive public good insists that are the Ultimate human reality. We, we reach the climax when we detach ourselves from God and any of the rules and, and laws and, and precepts that he lays before his people, which he does for their flourishing. But they say, no, 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 that's not the case. It's meant to be oppressive. It's binding, it's restrictive, it's bad for us. And so they see Christians who are trying to live faithfully and obediently to the Lord as being a threat to their pro- progressive public good. So this even takes place, what happens here is, to, to be a faithful Bible-believing, Bible-obeying Christian, it means that oftentimes it will come with negative social consequences. You, you might lose friends over your allegiance to Jesus. You, you might get passed up for a job based upon your religious convictions. Now, whether or not you agree with the time frames. I think we can all agree, if you've been around for 30, 40 years, there has certainly been a shift in the cultural perception of Christians. It's become increasingly difficult to be a true Christian, believing and obeying the word of God. Now, while we have not been physically persecuted, at least not here in North America, Christianity certainly is under fire. And as we live as faithful Christians, as we desire to to structure and order our lives underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ, we will find ourselves to continue to swim against an ever-intensifying current. And as we swim against this current, it might be that we find ourselves fatigued we find ourselves worn out, tired from the constant striving, the constant fight, and we could get to the end of our rope and ask the question, is the struggle worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep running our heads into the wall? We're always on guard, it seems. We're, 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 as Christians, we're always taking the things that, that the culture is uh, like advancing, The things that the the culture is is championing, Christians who who derive our, our views and values from Scripture are always taking a stand against those things. And with that comes criticism and slander. You might lose your friends. Might create a rift within your family. And then you wonder, is it worth it? Is, is all this trouble, is all the heartache of living for Jesus really worth it? And some of you might be there right now. I've faced these questions myself over the last several decades. I remember being in college and wondering, hey, is it really worth holding on to a, a biblical sex ethic? Or can we just go along with Now, I don't know what it is for you, but I do know that this is one of the enemy's tactics that he uses to derail Christians from living faithfully in this world. The enemy uses doubt-provoking questions to get us to second-guess what God has called us to, to to what God has put before us. And it goes back as far as the Garden of Eden when the serpent slithered up to Eve, well, he... At that point, he had legs. So he came up to Eve and said, did God really say? Now, when we looked at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 4, we see the same thing going on, where the adversaries, the neighbors of the land of, of Jerusalem are looking at God's people, rebuilding the ruins, trying to rebuild the city walls of a city that was destroyed because of their disobedience, their forsaking of God. And, and they have turned back to God. They have set their heart on God and the things he has called them to. And now they are receiving this criticism. The adversaries say, do you really think you can build? Can you really resurrect these stones and build them up? Now, thankfully, we have a great resource when these questions come. We are surrounded by a host of witnesses proclaiming that it's worth it. All of the saints, all of the martyrs who are right now standing in the glorious presence of Jesus Christ all testify the same thing. It is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, worth it. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He's trying to warn the church, the early church, because this is not a new phenomenon. The church has always had opposition. Faithful men and women living faithfully to Jesus have always faced criticism and critique and persecution and every other thing trying to prevent faithfulness to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. First in verse eight, he he acknowledges the fact that there is real hostility. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he fast forwards a little bit down to, to verse 16, where he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now listen to this. Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Get your minds around that. The present trials, the present opposition is incomparable to the glory that awaits us on the other side. It's as if the apostle Paul says, hey, I have counted the cost of what it is to follow Jesus. And it's a bargain. It's a bargain. Now, once we as Christians have made up our minds to keep our hands to the plow, which I realized this morning, we, we, this is part of the, the, the challenge of preaching Nehemiah because I realize, in one sense, there are aching souls that, that just feel so battered up, so bruised up, so, so wrought with sorrow and anxiety and pain. It's like, how, how, are, how can you possibly call me to put my hand to the plow? I can barely put my pants on today. But this is the grace of Jesus Christ That is, he calls us right where we're at. He doesn't say, I need you to get a little bit better, and then you'll finally be useful to me. He says, right where you're at is where I want you to start. Jesus meets us there. But then when Jesus meets us there, he has a task for us. There's work for us to do, not to achieve salvation, but because we have received our salvation. And once we have received that grace from Jesus and and the grace that propels us to live in obedience to him all of the days of our lives, we want to keep our hand to the plow. The next question we need to ask is, how do we remain faithful under fire? If If we've counted the cost and it's a bargain, how do we remain faithful under fire? Now I'm bringing us to chapter four of Nehemiah to show you the key to under fire faithfulness. So if you wanna open up your Bible with me, we're gonna gonna dig into the second half here uh, and get going here. We left off last week with a bit of a, a cliffhanger. Um, Nehemiah and company, they had divvied up the labor of the wall. They were getting to work. And then all of the opposition started seeing what was going on. They didn't like it. And we saw this incrusty hostility sort of arise among the neighbors. And where we left off was where the people of Jerusalem were shaken up by this. They were rattled by the threats that were out there, looming, real threats. People, like, not just wanting to stop them and and get them to get busy with something else. They wanted to kill them. They're rattled by this. We see there's there's fear and anxiety of, of the group. And what we see in the midst of this is Nehemiah stands up. And he meets the anxiety of the people with a non-anxious presence. Let me let me just bring you back to verse 13 and 14 of chapter 4. Nehemiah looked around, he arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people: Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Like he gives this big rally cry. Right? It's like the motivational speech that the people have been waiting for. He gets up there, delivers this. He says, I want you to set your minds on the future glory. There's opposition, sure. But think of your wives. Think of your children. Think of this place. There's future glory here. But that's where we stopped. Right? Right at the apex, the rally cry, and the whoop, sermon over. And we're left wondering what happened here. Did did, did the people respond? Did, did Did they stand up and fight? Was there a big old brawl? Did they tuck their tail between their legs and run? Well, verse 15 tells us. Take a look here. When our enemies heard that it was known to us of their plans to destroy them, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Verse 15 tells us, without swinging a single sword, without launching a single arrow, God foils the plans of the enemies. And what's interesting here is rather than Nehemiah saying, hey, yeah, that's because we're so smart. We put a plan together and it worked flawlessly. He didn't do that rather than attributing their, their, their preparation, uh, their success, their strategy to, to all of those things, Nehemiah says, look, it was God who foiled their plans. I can't help but think of the psalmist in Psalm 24 who says, the Lord is mighty in battle. So mighty that at times the people don't even have to fight. The Lord is mighty in battle. Now, what Nehemiah is doing right here, he's highlighting the sovereignty of God. And if you look for it, it permeates the entirety of this story. Now, what is the sovereignty of God? We talk about the sovereignty of God. We're talking about the reality, the truth that God is all-powerful, And he is able to accomplish all his holy will by any means which he desires. Let me run that back. The sovereignty of God is is the reality that God is all powerful and able to accomplish all of his holy will by any means he desires. Now, the sovereignty of God is what has compelled Christians throughout all ages, and, and even go back to our Old Testament brothers and sisters to revere God as the almighty. That, that's what we call God, almighty God. That's what we're invoking, his, his sovereignty. Now, the sovereignty of God is not a arbitrary doctrine that theological nerds like to argue about. That's not what it was made for. The sovereignty of God is the key to Christian living, the sovereignty of God is the key to under fire faithfulness. Let me show you why. Throughout Nehemiah, the sovereignty of God is highlighted in several different ways, different facets of the sovereignty of God. We saw first, back in chapter two, chapters one and two, the sovereignty of God demonstrated in God's plan. I'm working with four Ps today for those of you note takers, four Ps. God's sovereign plan shows us God's will, what he desires to do. It was God who placed the desire on Nehemiah's heart to return home, to rebuild the wall. This was not a human brainchild. This was not a a clever idea that Nehemiah had in and of himself. This was something that God came up with and put it on the hearts and minds of his servants. Now, this is what we need to consider here, is that at times, we give ourselves to things that, that at one moment we think it is God's plan, and it, it, I, I, in this scenario, it is God's plan. But, but as soon as we get going, it gets harder, there's opposition. What happens when we start, start to, to um, dial back the reality that this was indeed God's plan? Well, we start making compromises, we start lowering the bar. We make compromises and and we we move into uncertainty, but, but Nehemiah here had the certainty to know that the plan that was put before him was from God. Now, there are things, I can't tell you if God has a plan for you to go build a business or what kind of business that is, but there are things that we can be certain about because the holy word of God testifies to the calling of what God's will is. There are all kinds of places. But God shows his plan to Nehemiah back in chapter two. And then shortly after that, we see the sovereignty of God demonstrated. This is the second P in God's provision. God gave Nehemiah a plan that outpaced any sort of resources that Nehemiah had available at his fingertips. He was not a builder. He was not, he, in fact, he was, he was a, uh, a small A. I, I'm trying to use my fancy wine words here, but he, he was the cupbearer uh, to the king, bringing wine to him. He didn't know how to build. Neither did the people that eventually would come along, but God provided both the resources through King Artaxerxes, which is another important thing to see how God works through other people to provide the things that are needed for his plan. God makes provision of resources, then God gives the manpower as Nehemiah returns back to Jerusalem, and what we see is what God wills, God provides. What God plans, God will provide for. And we can be confident of that because God is not limited on his own resources. Again, going back to the psalmist, Psalm 50 The cattle on a thousand hills belong to God. Everything, every resource is available at God's fingertips. And I, I know I've been guilty of this as a church planter where you're trying to make it work and you're on a shoestring budget and you, you have no idea how this is gonna do this and that and that. and you know Whether it's, it's life or ministry or mission or some kind of, of, of calling that God has put on you, God has the resources, if it is his will, he has the resources to provide for you. So if you see the sovereignty of God in his plan, but for, forget to see that he will provide to bring about his plan... It's easy to get overwhelmed for, for that task to feel daunting. But once again, God shows his sovereignty and, and his plan and provides for the Amiah, And then as they get to building, we see the sovereignty of God offered by his protection. God's plan and his people will be protected by the God who calls them to it. But just because it's God's plan doesn't mean the task is easy, right? Building the wall is not an easy task. And a lot of times we, we, we think That if God calls me to, actually, I remember a conversation that I had with my friend a few years ago, I I said to him, I was kind of, I was in a season where ministry was hard, I was lamenting the challenges, and I said, "If, if church planting is God's, if God's plan for the redeeming of the world, then why did he make it so hard? I was so naive, and at times I still find myself wondering that, but... Just because it's God's plan doesn't mean it's going to be easy. We saw this with Nehemiah. The nations were raging. They were outmanned. They were outgunned by every metric. The people in Jerusalem didn't stand a chance. Yet without swinging a sword or shooting an arrow, God protected them and foiled the plans of the enemy, keeping them safe. A lot of times... When we're reckoning with the protection of God, we fail to see just how good of a protector God is. Psalm 1830 says, God is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to live this sort of bubble-wrapped kind of life. But even when you get those nicks and bumps and bruises from living faithfully, God will uphold his own and protect them. Now, when we fail to see that, what we do is, is we start to build our own protection structures. Rather than living in the plan of God, well, I'm, I'm going I'm to sideline myself. I see this big plan that God's called me to but man, I just don't know, that seems like a lot. If I try, I fail, it's gonna be really embarrassing. It's gonna be, I'm gonna hit the ground really hard. And so we say, well, I'm just not gonna do it. It's safer that way. Or, or, or even from, from a perspective of like relationships within the church community, right? To, to build one another up in love, well, that means I, I have to be somewhat relationally vulnerable with you Like like I have to bring my authentic self, my real true self, not this facade, not this guarded self. I have to bring the, the real me that God has created into that relationship and there's a chance that I might get hurt. But God is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Now throughout this story of Nehemiah, um, he, he's clearly functioning with the sovereignty of God in view, right? He knows a plan. He knows the provisions are there. He just saw God's protection and the fact that there was not a war that broke out. But, but the awareness of the sovereignty of God doesn't turn into this like sort of hands-off, sort of, well, God will handle it, so I don't need to worry about it sort of a thing, I think that's how a lot of people understand the sovereignty of God. They think, well, if God's really in charge, if God, God is really protecting and planning and providing, then it's like, well, I'm off the hook. Like, I, I don't have anything. To, it's God's sovereignty. He's got the power. He's, he's driving the caboose, right? So I'm off the hook. Well, no. The sovereignty of God doesn't mean you can now do whatever you want. Now, Nehemiah shows The opposite is is what's working out in his understanding of the sovereignty of God. He sees the sovereignty of God and and said, Well, God's got it under control. He says, I'm gonna live into that. I see the direction which God is pointing his people. I see he's given provisions, I see the protection. I am going to live into that direction. And what does he do? He keeps building. Look we'll at verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and a half held the spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And a leader stood bes- uh, behind the whole house of Judah. So they're, they're giving their encouragement. Uh, who are building the wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held up his weapon in the other. So a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. So there's a great distance between all of the people who are working, and they're separated from the wall, far from one another. So in the place that you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Now, what we're seeing here is a division of labor that takes place. So on one hand, the war didn't happen, but there are very much real threats out there still that they didn't just evaporate into, into the air. Those people are still out there. They're opportunists. They're waiting for the guard to be dropped. But Nehemiah says, we're not gonna give them the opportunity. We are going to do the work while defending. A sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Now, some of the people are designated specifically to watching the guard, and others are, are giving themselves to the work. Verse 17, the people, are, are got, they're strapped. They got swords on their hips. And so what we're seeing is even though God is sovereign and even God has, has the ability to protect his people, Nehemiah very much senses a responsibility that he needs to live accordingly and set up a structure, set up an infrastructure, work with God toward that end. And so they set up a strategy. If, the, if, if you hear this, this trumpet blast, come to where the trumpet is. That's where the battle will be. And then even as you go further on in verse 21, you see that there's this vigilant night watch that ta- happens, so he labored at the work, he says, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. So, so people are on shifts here. They're rotating. The work won't stop day and night. It's going on and on and on. And he said to the people at the time, let every man and a servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be on guard for us by night and may labor by day. So he's saying here, instead of going home, Instead of going outside of the city walls where you're more vulnerable and then the the people here are lacking in more manpower, why don't you stay in here? Stay in the city walls. Be ready. Work your long days and have the sword in hand in case something were to happen. In fact, he says this as he closes in verse 23, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. So they're taking it seriously. The, the job goes on, the building resumes, but there at the same time is a defense that needs to be put in place. Now to some, it might look like Nehemiah isn't really living with the sovereignty of God in view, right? There might be some accusations. Well, um. He just, this is just his anxiety. He's over planning, he's being too strategic, right? He's just, isn't this just him taking matters into his own hands? I mean, he's doing so much activity, so much work, so much brainstorming that he's not relying enough on God. But we see that's not the case at all because at the second half of verse 20, he says, rally to the point where you hear the trumpet cry. And he's not, hey, not then we'll fight, then we'll win. He says what? Our God will fight for us. Everything that he's laying out, all of the plans that he's making, is done in view of God's sovereignty. And it is on God to deliver the protection. Now, what this shows us is an interesting relationship between these three Ps right now, the, the, the plans, the provision, the protection. It's, it's not this like black and white sort of thing, but if, if, here, let me break it down. So if Nehemiah were to think too much about the protection piece, if you were to say, okay, well, we got people out there and they're breathing down our necks and I know that any chance that they get, they're gonna come at us and they say, well, we're just gonna set up a, a wall of people and we're gonna stand guard all the time. If he does that, what happens? The building stops that there's no, there's no production that takes place. Now, if he does the other thing where he just focuses too much on the production, it's like everybody's got to get right back to it and doesn't think at all about the protection. What's gonna happen is, is those people are vulnerable. The people that, that he's building the city for are now casualties, But here we see both going hand in hand, that that God has plans for them to work on. There's a job to be done. At the same time, they need to be at the ready. And this again is a place where we see the provision of God working itself out. Because God has made provisions in the people, in their spirits, not just for the building, but for the defending. And once again, God graciously provides for and protects the people he has called to his plans. And because of this, here's the fourth P of God's sovereignty, that God prospers. This is how we know that God is sovereign. Everything he sets out to do, he will accomplish. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can thwart his plans. In fact, you can even say that God plans for the opposition to come. And a lot of times, it's to refine us. I I, just, in the back of my mind, I I wasn't having this in my notes, but I think of James, James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Because what? It produces steadfastness. It creates a specific kind of man or woman of you. That is what the adversity is for. Now, when I talk about God prospering, I'm not talking in the sense of getting rich. Although there is a case to be made of how God blesses his people. And in some ways it's monetarily when we live according to his word and his ways what i'm talking about specifically here is god's prospering in the sense of bringing success to his plans the prophet isaiah says it like this in in chapter 14 verse 27 for the lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it his hand is stretched out and who will turn it back See, Isaiah sees like, Nehemiah sees like, we ought to see that God is the almighty and what God says he will do, it will be done. It's as good as done. Whether it's building a wall in Jerusalem or building God's kingdom on earth here in the Quad Cities. What God plans, God will provide for, God will protect for, and God will prosper. The building of the kingdom of earth right here in our local context is the plan that God has laid before us. He's made provisions for it. God has called his people to this mission. Now the kingdom of heaven, it's hard to it's hard to pin down. But the place where it starts being developed, being built. It's within godly homes, which spill over into godly churches, into a more God-centered city. Now, this work of building the kingdom of heaven, which starts right there in your home, it spills out from there. You have to realize that we're in hostile environments here there are threats still looming out there. And and while we were in the positive world of Aaron Wren's positive world, we maybe didn't have to be on guard as we are now. Maybe even in a neutral world, that was still the, the case. But there are adversaries out there and the enemy wants to topple and destroy everything that God is for. And so there's need for the church to stand up into our dual vocation, to build, to build godly homes, plant more gospel-centered churches, transform the city for the glory of God, but be on guard, be watchful. Stand with the sword of truth to guard and defend against the lies. That's what we're dealing with here, folks. It's not so much a physical threat as it is the threat of lies undermining, devaluing the truth. And there are people who are no more vulnerable than our children to these lies that are just permeating all of our society. And as Christian parents, we have to have a kingdom mindset here to see that our children are our heritage. The Lord plans to use our children to advance the kingdom of heaven through them and the next generation and the next generation and the next. But in this state that they are in, they are the most susceptible to the lying darts of the enemy. And unfortunately, unfortunately, there are so many children that have grown up in the church that are being picked off. They're being tar- targeted by social media, whether it's through like bullying, like just another avenue for kids to be mean to other kids, whether it's the hypersexualization that we see in our culture. All of these things are, are competing ideas of what the good life is. Christians stand and say that, that the only way to the good life is through Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is, the, we sang about it. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. None get to the good life. None get to the Father except through him. But the culture says, no, 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 no. You can create your own good life. Actually, the way you create a good life is you buck off God. You say, not today. And fueling the fire are these God-hating advertisements that you see on television, on the internet. You see an education that has been plagued by secularism. You see content everywhere you turn that is just beckoning children to turn away from the real good life to something that is lesser than. So much so that kids are being told that they can scrub the Imago day that has been implanted on them through gender fluidity created him in the image of God, male and female. This is a very real thing. The threats are real. This is not a, oh, it'll blow over scenario. There is a need for Christians to stand up for what is good and true and beautiful to build the kingdom of heaven here on earth, but it means that we're gonna have to take a stand and defend those truths. We're gonna to have to defend what is beautiful and good. When you look at the world, things seem crazy. Like things are so crazy, when you're a normal person in the midst of them, you start to wonder, am I crazy? Am I the one that's lost my mind? It's like, if you're, if you're rooted in the word of God, you're, you're, you can be confident that it's not you, it's the world. Because it's either Christ or chaos. Those are the only two options. And though the craziness just goes and goes and goes, we as Christians can stand and not be overwhelmed because we know that we have been called to glory. Like like Nehemiah calls the people to think of of the future, think of their, their wives and their children in this place. God has called us to a greater glory. And to those whom God calls, he provides for, he protects, and he prospers. Now, Nehemiah, I'm not gonna lie, every time I open up the book of Nehemiah, I just feel juiced. I'm ready. I'm, ready to, I'm ready to go. Because Nehemiah's faith begets in me a, a new, stronger, more convictional faith. Nehemiah lives in confidence that God will rebuild the ruins, that God directs the steps, that God provides for them and God will prosper. Now, if that's true of Nehemiah in his day, how much more true should that be of us? How much more confidence should we have because we know how things end? Jesus wins. The church is exalted. The people of God stand in glory with their Savior and Christ, and the whole cosmos is restored. And the reason for this is God is sovereign. The reason why we can have confidence is because God is sovereign, and we see God's sovereignty exercised in the salvation and redemption of his people. Let me take you real quick here. I know I'm, well, I I don't care. Uh, I'm going to Ephesians 1. The Apostle Paul. This is one of my favorite passages in all scripture. He says, blessed be the God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, there's a plan involved there. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So that we should be what? Holy and blameless. There's a standard, goodness, beauty, truth. Holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, going back to the plan, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus. There's the provision. According to the purpose of his will. Again, the purpose. To the praise of his glorious grace It's loaded with the sovereignty of God. You see it, the plan, the provision, the purpose, the prospering glory to unite all things in heaven and on earth to Christ. Christian, your great confidence, the key to faithfulness under fire, comes from understanding the sovereignty of God, that what God wills cannot be stopped. And he has chose you, predestined, planned for his purpose to save you from your sin. Listen, here's the heart of compassion that Christians ought to have, that as we look at the enemy, as we look at the threats that are out there in the world, it's like we were one of them at one point. Before Christ, my mind was bent on things like that. My my flesh, my heart, my mind was set on the flesh. But Christ in his sovereignty, God in his sovereignty sent Jesus. So by grace through faith in Jesus Christ to the glory of God, I would be delivered and saved and anyone who calls upon Christ would receive the same. And it's to this purpose that you've been called to be part of the uniting of all things in Christ, things in heaven and earth. Now, Jesus does the heavy lifting, folks. Jesus does all the heavy lifting, but the church is invited into this work of rebuilding the ruins, of of seeking the kingdom of heaven here and now by discipling the nations, starting in your home, by preaching and displaying the gospel. Listen, you cannot do this without an understanding of God's sovereignty. Otherwise, it becomes a performance. Otherwise, your your religious zeal rises and falls on your performance, on how good you are at doing this, at being your own savior. But God has saved you completely. Now, the invitation is live into that. Live into the salvation in which you've received. Be who you already are in Christ Live in light of God's sovereignty. And, and, and persecution and opposition and hostility makes it all the more necessary. Live in light of God's sovereignty, knowing that what God sets out to do, he will prosper. Church, let us give ourselves To to not just the warfare of of criticizing and constructing and and knocking down the age, uh, the spirit of the age, but building something more glorious and better. I'm losing my voice. To build and defend. Knowing that as we prepare, as we live into this, God fights for us. He protects us. We have this confidence from Luke 21. Where Jesus says, not a hair will per- perish. It's by enduring, you will gain life. And one of the great hopes that we have is that there is an expiration date to all of the opposition. In glory, there will be no fighting. All of the spears, all of the swords, all of the, the, the bows will be beaten into plows. The weapons of warfare now become gardening tools because Christ is king, because God is sovereign. And one day we will get to enjoy Christ's unrivaled kingdom. But little by little, we get tastes of it here. And one day we'll be here fully and forever to the glory of Christ. Amen. Father, wow there is none like you. Who could who could concoct such a plan? Who could deliver on such a plan? Who would be so gracious to, to tend to and nurture and protect those who are living into your will? Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is, is resolute, just straight on stuck on you. I pray that you would make us faithful under fire, Lord, that all of the the, the whispers, the, the, the doubt-provoking questions of the enemy would be rebuttaled with a strong and mighty, the Lord is sovereign. Thank you for showing us that in, in our salvation. And thank you for showing us this throughout time, Lord. Help us, help us in everything that you've called us into, whether at home, in the church, or in the city, for your glory, for the good of your people. Amen.